is another Off the Record podcast with your guest host, Sergey Ross, where we interview great founders and venture capitalists. I have a great guest today for you guys, Scott Absher, who started his career in product development and support. And right now he's a co-founder and chief executive officer at Shift Pixie, which is a gig platform that to keep your schedule, to keep your schedule filled with local on-demand workforce. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming. Sergey, good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Well, tell us, I want to start with Shift Pixie. What, how does it actually work? What's the, what's the whole premise of, of the platform that you're developing? Sure. Yeah, when we started the company uh, back in June of 2015, uh, both my co-founder and I had a background in the human capital management space. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we did was we helped small to mid-sized companies navigate all the rules and regulations and all the duties that employers have as it relates to employees. Uh, and uh, a lot of people don't know, they haven't been on the, the ownership side of a business where they had employees that uh, there are a lot of requirements between uh, employer side taxes that most people don't know about. Um, the the uh, employers also have responsibilities for uh, providing workers' compensation coverage, uh, securing that with an outside carrier uh, in case somebody's hurt on the job. That's the, uh, the sole remedy for any kind of workplace injury. But there's also some 60 different uh, government agencies, both state and federal, that have an interest in you as a business owner and how you conduct yourself as an employer. And um, and so we would uh, we would uh, come to uh, small companies like that, usually uh, between 20 and 50 employees, and we mm -hmm. would take over their entire HR stack. So we would handle all the administration, all the reporting, all the taxes, the workers' compensation. We would uh, provide and administer all the benefits, whether they were retirement benefits or health benefits. And we would do this over and over again. And, and they, uh, the interesting thing about that business and what I loved about it is, number one, we were liberating these uh, business operators to do what they did best. Because when, when you become an employer, nobody's good at that stuff. And uh, so they had a chance to get it out of their, uh, their nest and on the other side of the firewall to really protect the business. Because if you fail on some of those things, they have repercussions that actually could pierce the corporate veil if you uh, failed on some of those things. So uh, that was a, a great uh, business to be in. Uh, and we loved uh, the best thing that you could hear mm -hmm. in that business in those days was, I wouldn't be in business today if it weren't for you. That, and that's really gratifying. And it was a, a narrow margin business, but it was reoccurring revenue. And you could, over time, stack hundreds or thousands of these types of clients. And it was a great business to be in. Uh, one of the rules of thumb in that business was uh, that we stayed away from any business that had uh, high part-time labor reliance. And that would be uh, businesses like restaurants or retail and some of the service industries. And the reason for that was if I'm handling your entire HR stack, um, uh, it's, it's, I can't make any money with you if you have high turnover. Uh, in the old days, the tradition was that if you had a high reliance on part-time labor in those industries I described, uh, you could expect 100% turnover. And so it meant that I'm, I'm doing a lot of hand-holding, a lot of administration, and a lot of work where I'm already making a very thin margin. And then I'm also losing two areas of monetization, which would be health benefits and retirement benefits, because part-time labor generally does not uh, have right. those as part of the, of the package. So we all stayed away from them. 
when I met my co-founder, he was neck deep in that kind of business. And I told him at the time, I thought he was crazy. And he said, no, he because you guys won't uh, come after this market. So I get to work this market uh, all by myself. And, um, and uh, he was right, because no, none of us were going to go after that. But uh, uh, he called me uh, uh, in May of 2015 and said, you know, I've, there, I've, there's a problem in the marketplace and, and, and I don't know exactly what it is. And he said that for the first time um, in his career, uh, spanning over 30 years, that clients, his restaurant clients were asking him to if they could help him find uh, them uh, employees. And he said, I've never been asked that in 30 years because that's not what we do. We're not in the recruiting or the search business or the placement business. And uh, but uh, it, and it wasn't just one; it was all of those clients. And and their rationale was, you know, you're in Southern California, we're in Southern California. You have a lot of us in the same area, and surely you guys have got to know where we can find more employees. <laughs> and uh, so so he, his idea was to uh, to uh, uh, take these silos, these service silos that we put uh, clients in, and break them just a little bit. Um, uh, so that they could share a scheduling uh, uh, layer of technology on top. And then by doing that, they could open up their shifts to this population that we had on the, on the platform. And uh, he went back to them and said, do you think this would work? They all loved it and wanted to have it. So when he called me about that, uh, lightning struck uh, because um, uh, in my world, I was working with, and I went to market through a lot of large uh, property and casualty insurance agents, uh, particularly in Southern California. And what uh, one, I was one of those resources that they had a client or a risk, as they would refer to these clients, that was difficult to place. They would come to me and say, "Could, could?" Uh, uh, and it was for workers' compensation purposes. Um, they would bring me these weird risks um, that they couldn't place. And I had a call from one of my agents in uh, L.A. that said, hey, uh, Mr. Workers' Comp Guru, I got I got one for you. See if you can figure this out. And uh, what he what he started to unpack for me said, these guys want to know, number one, if they have a a work comp risk because they have a a, a strange business model with an irregular labor component. But if they do, how do you meter it? Because they're because of how they do this, they have an unreliable and and very flexible uh, labor component. That uh, in the in workers' compensation is always pegged to the hourly labor rate. That's how it's metered out in the, in the market. And so um, he started the conversation with uh, explaining that um, these guys are sort of like a taxi company, uh, but uh, they don't really own any equipment. He said what they do is they let people that have cars connect with people um, who uh, are looking for rides over a mobile phone. And I remember the first time I heard that concept, <laughs> who would do that? Who would let a stranger in their car get in the car with a stranger? But nonetheless, uh, we spent the time, I, uh, I spent the time listening to their, their, their workflow, their business, and how they captured an opportunity, how they turned it into work, and how that work was performed, and then ultimately how it was compensated for. And I, my report to them was, they said, listen, in all 50 states, uh, you would have a workers' comp exposure um, uh, b- based on your description, and um, and and I also as part of that that mission, we came up with a way to micrometer that coverage on a per shift basis, and so they deliberated on that and they came back and they said, well, we we appreciate your analysis and your work on this, but. Um, our lawyers tell us that uh, we don't have an exposure because we're treating them as 1099s. I said, look. 
whatever you tell the IRS and you're using that as your standard, that's just one piece of the puzzle. Insurance commissioners in all 50 states have a very different opinion about that, and they don't look at it that way. And, um, and I said, so I'm going to give you some, uh, some advice or some comments in parting. Number one, you would not be the first company to spend a lot of money on bad legal advice. Uh, second, um, uh, and it's a, not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, that uh, it, traveling through the market uh, in, in what the insurance uh, industry calls bare or uh, and not having coverage, and then uh, fun, finally trying to secure and put in coverage in place, uh, oftentimes you have to go back retroactively. Uh, these uh, state insurance commissioners can make you go back retroactively to the beginning of your business and, and contribute all the premium you should have contributed into the system. And, uh, and I said, and that's something your attorneys don't know. And I said, uh, but, uh, and it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. And that company was Lyft. And I, I remember right. coming away from that conversation and I started having other ones with a lot of these other gig platforms that were emerging. And they were essentially uh, 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 flipping the middle finger off to uh, uh, all the federal and state regulators saying, we're not an employer, we're not going to do this. And they scoffed at all this you know, decades, uh, you know, uh, 50 years really of, of settled employment law. And we knew people that went to jail for breaking some of those, uh, those things before. So, um, uh, so we saw when, when he called me with that opportunity, I said, this is going to be much bigger than you know. I said, we're going to take uh, and build very elegant cloud-based mobile uh, uh, SaaS technology uh, that's going to take and deliver everything we know about compliance one shift at a time. And as we got into that, on the, into that mission and we started uh, bringing and boarding clients uh, you know, uh, to manually run their business before our technology was fully uh, uh, ready, um, uh, we started to do a lot more digging and found out uh, why uh, we were seeing this uh, uh, high level of turnover. And we found out was the old tradition of 100% turnover had actually gone to three and 400% in these industries. And we saw the, ex uh, the gating reason for that. And it all started really in 2009, in March of 2009, with the birth of Uber. Uber completely changed the rules of engagement, and now they created uh, an opportunity for anybody that was dedicated to working part-time or flexibly, now they could do so by just flipping on their smartphone. That's and you also point. saw from between 2009 and 2015, this big in smartphone usage. So that's why now in, in, when 2015 arrives, all of these uh, brick and mortar operators are now competing for this very finite uh, uh, number of part-time workers in the U.S. So that's what the that's what we went out to to try and do is to go out and cure toxic turnover. Wow, that's uh, I mean that's the very lucrative place to be in, and, and it definitely solves a massive massive problem uh, of how do you actually navigate this this whole this whole place around. But do you feel do you feel Scott that right now even if even if we're talking part-time, there are not enough workers. There are not enough qualified people to actually do the job, especially as we get everybody working from home. Yep. Yeah. In fact, what I just described for you, this, this Uber and this gig platform phenomenon, that created what we call or consider the first wave of human capital markets disruption. So that, that was very profound. Uh, but COVID and, and uh, created this, a second wave of human capital market disruption. What happened was all of a sudden, 
um, and, and I'll use the restaurant industry as an example, just because we're entrenched there, is all of a sudden uh, people that were working in those jobs got unmoored from the, uh, the companies they were working for, the jobs that they had, and dining rooms were closing, and, and so people were separating from, and we thought that PPP loans were going to kind of restore order there. They didn't. A lot of these operators pocketed the PPP money uh, at, uh, and never used it to uh, bring people back to work. So, so uh, it kind of failed in, in, in its execution. But what created a third uh, immediate wave behind that of uh, uh, human capital markets disruption were the, uh, the government subsidies. They were subsidizing people to stay, uh, stay at home and stay away from work. And then as uh, business started climbing out post-COVID, nobody was going back to work. So we're still kind of swimming in that third wave of disruption where people are actually, they're doing two things. Number one, they're saying, do I really want to go back to doing that work that I used to do? Um, uh, and, uh, or do I want to find something else to do? So uh, not, not only did you have uh, toxic levels of turnover, now they just can't find people. And uh, there's major disruption in the human capital markets. And it actually set us on a path to really uh, build a much better mousetrap and a much better approach to that in, in our business. But yeah, yeah there's, I, it's clearly a major upheaval. Yeah, and, and it doesn't seem like to, to stop. I, think, I mean, we had conversations around gig economy in, in before when mm -hmm. Uber was just coming along, then Lyft came about, like right. everybody's going to be in the future, everybody's be doing gig economy, flip their smartphone, do the work for whatever the time they want, and then they'll be good. So totally different model, but then nobody predicted COVID and that whole thing right. accelerated so much. Um, yep. And on the full-time market, then... Folks who are, let's say, developers, the probably the most, um, the biggest example, like anybody, all, all the U.S. firms hiring developers from there, they pay in the U.S. prices or the U.S. salaries, and then it's a nobody else could actually, they suck out the whole talent from the world, effectively, or That's from right. countries like Canada, for example. So that creates a tremendously difficult uh, situation. Yes, it does. Yeah, we're seeing this across the spectrum. Uh, one of the things that uh, you know, as, as I said, we're we're kind of uh, kind of building a, a better mousetrap for this. One of the things that how does that we, work? How does that actually work, Scott? Like, what, what do you? How do you look at it? The whole the whole the whole model. Sure. So what what we do is we think uh, a lot about two user experiences. One is that of the the person that's working part time. How do they want to? Uh, 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 a survey opportunity, look at opportunity. How do they want to connect with the opportunity and how do they want to get paid for opportunity? So we, we spend a lot of time creating a very rich user experience from the time they onboard and, uh, and they, they get into our system and they get into a schedule and they get into a rhythm. Um, the, you know, part of the, the problem with some of the gig platforms is the uh, amount of income that you can make. They, uh, I'm, I'm told that the average uh, uh, earner uh, on uh, on uh, say Uber uh, for, for example makes about six to seven hundred dollars a month and it's not reliable income. What we're trying to do is establish a platform that's tied to regular brick and mortar work activity where somebody can make a much more stable uh, income. So if, uh, as an example, on our platform, the the average earner is making over two thousand dollars a month and and also able to do it very flexibly. So that that's kind of the, the goal there. But what we what we did in building our technology, we were at a state of readiness. Finally, uh, the fall of last year, uh, when we started uh, building this, I knew that we would have a very big opportunity in the temporary staffing industry. 
because they too, that's the other half of the part-time labor population. And that's a very old, old line, old business that, uh, that has not been technically adapted to the new market. And um, in fact, they never had to, they didn't have to use elegant technology to communicate with their clients or with the people that were doing the work. So there was never a need for them to make that investment. So I knew that once we were at a state of readiness that we would have a high value uh, to uh, temporary staffing companies. And so uh, late last year, we started boarding our, our first uh, temporary staffing companies. But also what happened to us, we're a very, we're a very tiny uh, micro cap public company, but we have an investment banking relationship that's very fond of what we're doing. And uh, they uh, had approached us about doing some um, merger and acquisition work to accelerate our growth. And I wasn't really keen on uh, doing that. I, I occupy most of the, our capital table, so I, I didn't want to, you know, do anything that would be dilutive uh, over time. Uh, so, so what we, uh, what I did see though at the end of last year was the SPAC market he heated up. And what, if people don't know what those are, SPACs are special purpose acquisition companies that are set up, registered with the SEC as a blank check company, and then they're funded by investors. And with the mission of going out and making an acquisition, or in our case, a, a number of acquisitions. And so I went to our bankers with that proposition. I said, listen, here's a way to accelerate our growth, not use our own cap table. But what if we were to set up a SPAC uh, and we'd go out and roll up uh, a, a national footprint in industrial staffing? Because th there's, there's very few national leaders and there's a lot of really strong regional players. We'll go out, acquire them, put them into a, a, a bolt them together into a, a national footprint. Uh, they came back to us. They said they love the idea. I told them I'd need a, about a $250 million commitment. They made that commitment. And then I, but I pushed it a little further. I said, listen, there's some subsets of the staffing industry that we could also affect uh, change by operating on our technology. And uh, I, I suggested medical staffing, which they made a commitment for another 250 million there, and then also technology staffing. But I also uh, pushed them for a fourth uh, uh, SPAC uh, commitment. And I said it was uh, for an in a commercial insurance company, because one of the things that we've learned on our journey is that, that if um, uh, workers' compensation is not in, in the right alignment with the business, uh, especially in staffing, uh, it, they have some vulnerabilities there that they can't get coverage or they can't move into new markets without permission from a carrier. They can't go after certain types of clients because they need carrier permission. I said, what if we built a, a, a commercial insurance company that would benefit from the, the collective premium from all of these uh, companies, but also it could liberate them to, to really grow friction-free. They could go into new markets. They could go after different types of clients. And so they made a commitment to all four SPACs, and um, we, ver we very recently closed the first one of those. What we did uh, in going to the market, we, we right-sized those. We went from $250 million to $100 because it was more in step with the marketplace. So we, we uh, recently completed, uh, about a month ago, industrial human capital. Um, uh, we, uh, it was a hundred uh, million that we were looking for. We had, it was actually over, uh, oh, there was a accelerated interest in it. We had over $350 million worth of interest in our hundred million dollar deal. So it was, yeah, we, we got it closed very nicely. Uh, but more importantly, when we went on the roadshow for industrial human capital and explained what we were doing and how shift pixie as the sponsor was in a, a building mega clients for, for, for ourselves. And, and they could see the exponential revenue uh, uh, growth, uh, explosive revenue growth for us. Uh, they could see that our motive for doing this and our interests were directly in line with the SPAC. Uh, 
And, and they all said, we've never seen this before. This is one of the best use cases for a SPAC we've ever seen. And what I tell people is that, that another way of looking at this would be if Tesla were to uh, uh, sponsor a SPAC uh, and the money that they raised, they went out and, and acquired both Hertz and Avis uh, got rid of the fossil fleet and put an all EV fleet in there. Right. I said, that's kind of what we're doing. We're and building a mega client and doing that. For us, uh, we're, we, we have a run rate of about $100 million a year right now. Uh, this is going, uh, when we uh, get into the DSPAC process, which is going to happen in first quarter of 22, our, our run rate runs up to over a billion dollars suddenly. And, uh, and our, our net profit, uh, we, we're, we're EBITDA negative today because we've run so much money right. into R&D. Uh, now we go the other way and, uh, and, uh, and that's just with the first one. Uh, so uh, we've got, we've got uh, it's going to be a great year for us. But uh, what we also learned in that process, Sergey, was that, yeah. uh, and we didn't expect this. Uh, number one, we started to see like these acquisition targets that were rolling up. Um, that they they took the dip in the beginning of COVID, but then they immediately shot out afterwards to uh, levels higher than they were in in 2019. We also learned how dependent the Fortune 1000 is on this type of agile or flexible human capital. Uh, the Fortune 1000 uh, clients kept popping up in our in our due diligence work. And as we're putting things together, at the end of the day, we're going to be delighting these types of clients because the other side of the user experience that we're focused on is giving somebody that re relies on itinerant or flexible staffing real-time business intelligence on any market in the U.S. They don't have that today. They have to go digging for it. They have to do course, uh, make, make phone calls. And, and if you're a national, think of any big box retailer and you, you, you rely on this type of capital and we didn't, uh, human capital, we didn't realize that companies like Walmart, Target, uh, Amazon, uh, FedEx, they all rely on uh, flexible labor yeah. coming in and out that's not really on their books or on their full-time payroll. Uh, but uh, they have to, uh, in order for them to manage this nationally, they end up having to manage uh, dozens of relationships in all these markets around the country. They can't have a single source. So now they can. They'll Now they'll have a single place where they can look at any market and fix a human capital issue as it emerges in real time. And that doesn't exist in the marketplace today. So um, yeah, we're really, that's what I mean by upping our game and, 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 and really changing our approach to uh, the, the work in the human capital markets. How do you look at, Scott, at, um, at um the um, the actual uh, the workforce from a perspective of building their profile building their presence um because from what i understand it's not just necessarily one gig and it could be more it could be more of a retainer sort of engagement depending on depending on what the the other side of fortune uh, thousand uh, clients actually want like how do you build that discoverability of the workforce like the rating system or review system because I'm, I'm sure you thought about that for quite a lot and that's what yeah. makes uh, Amazon guys and, and Uber guys really uh, as good as they are yeah that's one of one of the things that we we've seen is I, I described the the legacy uh, uh, side of, of uh, human capital in, in the, sta the staffing industry. Again, no one's made uh, significant investments in technology. It's very monochromatic. Uh, so there's limited data, there's limited uh, uh, visualization of opportunity. Everything's very limited. What we're trying to do is pro provide this, this uh, high definition view of opportunity, um, uh, how to connect to that opportunity, how to put yourself in a position to access more opportunity, 
how uh, and actually how to how to use this platform to cobble together a better than average income uh and 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 that doesn't exist today so um and and really our inspiration for that was all these gig platforms and the way they were creating uh, better connections and creating and curating better opportunity in fiber Yep, and allowing stakeholders on both sides to have much more visibility and much more real-time data. So we're 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 essentially copying what they're doing to to uh, again create much better user experiences for people on the workforce, but also people that uh, re- uh, rely on these people in the workforce. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, we, we, as an agency, uh, as a product studio, we, we do uh, get some help on, on like from Fiverr, from Upwork for, for example, yep. for our marketing, but the, a lot of times what comes up and it, it, it is a challenge. Sometimes you'll find a really great person that you work with, but then they disappear or they're mm-hmm. overbooked. So it's that, that uh, a lack of consistency, which, is still an issue because you could get some great people, but then there's like, for example, you uh, want to do a bulk order. You want to do like, sure. um, or maybe you just book somebody for, for a lot longer than they expected. And that becomes an issue or sometimes the quality drops. Um, so there's still some, some of that to, to uh, dial in. Well, part of what we're doing, you're, you're pointing out one of the things that's, that is um, uh, probably a sore spot for all, all the stakeholders. And it's, and it's, um, on project-based work, I think you're always going to have that where where people are drifting from projects that interest them. In the part-time labor markets, we're really looking at a blue-collar dynamic. And what those people are looking for is reliable income that I I know I can show up, get paid, show up, get paid, and and, and so on. Um, So uh, what we've also done, though, in that process is we've used AI to keep the engagement active. So, for example, if somebody's adrift, uh, we want to find out why they're adrift, um, and, and AI will nudge them in presenting opportunities. And if we see that somebody's disconnected, uh, the system has the ability to communicate with them, and if they're permanently adrift, they go off the platform. But the, the whole idea is using AI to, to uh, poke at all those regular uh, intervals in a work week. And again, it's all geared to, part, uh, to part-time blue-collar labor, Right. Where the skill set's different on the creative side. Uh, listen, if I'm a creative, I'm going to probably track to the projects that either yeah. I, I'm I'm really creatively engaged with that motivate me. Right. That, yeah. that where I where I'd work on those projects, whether I got paid or not, because they're passion projects or on the other side of the spectrum said this one pays more. And I think that's what uh, you, you're going to start seeing in that market, in the in the creative market, but also in the uh, part time labor markets. In fact, wages are already escalating. It's really funny. Without, legis- without legislation, uh, uh, we, we now have a new national minimum wage of, of at least $15 an hour. Um, and we think that that's going to settle more at 20 And that's, uh, again, supply and demand. Right now, the, the workforce is carrying the balance of power. So if you're doing creative work, you hold the power. If you're doing software development, you hold the power. If you're doing blue-collar labor, you you hold the power and uh, and it's going to be reflected in, in wages but also flexibility where do you see scott all this uh, workforce or the future of workforce going like what what is going to be how is it going to be different in the future let's say a couple of years from now not five but because it's a little too far but a couple of years from now uh, hopefully COVID is under control like how is it going to be different we're probably going to stick a lot of the people will stick remotely uh, because it just makes sense. Now they've got a taste for it. But like, how do you see, like, what, what is the going to be a biggest landscape shift? 
I think what you're going to see is people uh, rethinking work. Uh, why? Let's starting off with the fundamental question: Why do I work? Uh, you know, uh, and and what work do I want to do? Uh, it, it was very funny. I think uh, growing up the way I did, my parents' generation, which would have been the the post World War II generation. I was never understood. I would jump from job to job to job. I was one of these serial learners. I Once I hit, was in a job and I learned everything that I, I was going to be allowed to learn, and I mean that by people put you in a box, like you just learn 100%. this, you stay here. 100%. And and I wanted to learn more. And once I realized that I, that I had learned everything I was going to learn, I, I moved on to the next one, the next one, next one. And my parents and, and my in-laws always looked at me as unstable, but what I was doing was stacking experiences and learning and building really for the work I do today, all of these things, you know, uh, accumulating those experiences. So I think you're going to start seeing the workforce look at things that way, where what can I, what can I, uh, what's my next challenge? And one of the things we try to do even internally here is we try to uh, uh, find ways for people to expand their their uh, their opportunity here. Take what they've learned so far and let them look at the next horizon. Say, I'd like to participate on that side of the business and make a path for them to do that. And I think any employer that's not doing that, uh, allowing people to to uh, be motivated by their passions, because what what happens is, and there's a uh, there's actually a psychology profile. You should look at it sometime. I think you'd find it fascinating. It's called it. um, uh, the System for Identifying Motivated Abilities, S-I-M-A. And this mm-hmm. was written by uh, and, and discovered by a, a fellow at Fermilab in Chicago. His job uh, at Fermilab, the ex- particle accelerator uh, uh, for back in the, the 60s and 70s, I think his name was Art Friedman, or uh, I think that's what mm-hmm. his name was. But uh, what he was uh, doing, whenever they had a project that was funded by the Department of Defense, uh, they would take this project, they'd break it apart. And what they, they, they did from an HR perspective, recruiting perspective, was to find PhDs that wrote on this particular aspect of particle physics, right, mm-hmm. uh, that was related to this project. So that's how they would pull together their teams for this project. What they found was these teams had really bad outcomes, uh, disharmony, a lot of, they just couldn't get a, a bunch of propeller heads all on the same page. But what he what he found out was that with a very simple uh, uh, method, he could conduct an interview that would allow him to find out what this person's motivated abilities, because just because they wrote their doctoral dissertation on this minute aspect of particle science, it didn't mean they were passionate about it. They just learned know. about it, they, they scrolled away the facts, right? So, so what he did is he, he, he his process was that he would uh, uh, ask them, he'd give them a, a, an interviewer, would call them and give them some homework. Say, tomorrow we're, gonna, we're going to uh, conduct our interview. And I want you to think about, go back to when you were a kid, and I want you to tell me a story about an activity that you did that you were really good at uh, and that you really enjoyed, whether anybody uh, noticed it or not. And then I want you to go to junior high and I want you to tell me that story. And then I want you to go to high school, tell me that story. And then, and then another uh, checkpoint in life and tell me those stories. And from those stories, from, from them telling, I did this thing and I really enjoyed it. I was really good at it. What, what, what emerged was their motivated ability. And what he then tried to do was to link people on these projects to their motivated ability. What they found was 
that people will work tirelessly and without income. Uh, they, they didn't care. They were passionate about this project. And I'll give you an example of that. Uh, when Michael Jordan came to the NBA, one of the things that NBA players are uh, uh, not allowed to do is play pickup games for the obvious reason they, they could get hurt, you know. And so yeah. don't you don't go back to don't go back to the old neighborhood and play and play uh, ball with your a pickup game with your old high school buddies. Don't do that. Michael Jordan insisted uh, that he had a, lo a love of the game clause in his contract, and they and they, and he fought them on that. And what he said was, "You don't understand. I have to play basketball." Whether you paid me or not, I have to play basketball. And uh, Tiger Woods was like that with golf. Right. I just have to do this. And these are and and when you can uh, link somebody's passion uh, and motivation to the the occupation, you get Michael Jordan's and Tiger Woods. So that's you know I think the next challenge, especially for um, uh, anybody that's relying on thought workers and that sort of thing, and think about it in, the, in like software development. There are some people that might be uh, blockchain developers just because th that's what they have to do, but they would rather be creative. And we find that in our business all the time because we have developers and creatives in, as part of our employee mix. And you, you, we, and not that we do it today, but it's, it's something we talk about a lot, but we really want to uh, follow people's passions and get them plugged in just because of that very thing that they will work tirelessly and, and their passion will drive them farther than a paycheck. And I think that's the way you're going to start seeing the workforce change again, especially with thought workers and white collar workers. Yeah, that will be pretty significant, especially considering now that there was a stat, I'm sure there's still a, like this still relevant now that 70, 80, or even more than 80% of people are not happy with their job. Right. That's kind of a depressing stat, but, but it is true, like, because they end up being in that job because there's a need. And then the more time they actually spend then you're locked in and you're, you, you, you have this, um, this time you spent and you don't really want to start, start over that becomes, and then also you, maybe you can't because you have mortgage or something. Well, this is the other thing too that I, I you know, I, I worry about with this work from home situation. And we, in fact, I just had a conversation with our our, C, our CTO uh, this morning. You know, uh, uh, technology has always been adapted for people to work remotely and all that. But but anthropologically, we're not wired that way. No. Uh, and, and and we talk about <laughs> no. that, uh, you know, with uh, like our create our, our CMO Amy Wang. Uh, about this all the time. She has more of the creative burden of the uh, of the company. And it's the, the idea that some of these things, uh, you need FaceTime. And I don't mean technical FaceTime, I mean legitimate FaceTime. That's how we're wired. That's how, that's how we were made. And uh, when you push against uh, how we were made and push us into a box, people, uh, I'll give you an example. People start living inside their head. They are not interacting with people. They're not, they're not having a, a, a physical, connection, uh, uh, you know, being very present with, them, uh, with, with their coworkers. And that's where I worry about, you know, like project drift and things like that, where somebody's uh, not able to do their job. Now, technology, if, if you're writing code, that, that industry's already been adapted to that. And if you're a, a code jockey, you need quiet, you need to be isolated, you need to, you know, head down, hands on keys to get your work done. So it, but there are other occupations that are probably not as, as well adapted to that. And I, I look at like creative uh, industries, uh, you know, it's just, so I, I don't know how that gets reconciled over time. And again, you've got this, this slipping away and you've got passions being disconnected. So it's, we're in a murky place to, to be sure through all of this. It's COVID really opened up some wounds, I think. 
Yeah, and um, and uh, as a matter of fact, I don't believe you can do great uh, creative work by uh, being isolated. It just doesn't work. Like especially because nope. the creative ideas and the execution, um, there is no roadmap. Like, no. you're, like if you're trying to create a video or if you're trying to create a marketing campaign, yes, you could take a template and, and go from Google or copy paste it and it's going to be mediocre. It's going to be what it is. But if you're trying to create something that, is really, that really pops, it is uh, much harder to do on Zoom or online. You could, but it's much harder. And so it's, no. it's uh, that simulation that, that you're talking about. Well, that's, you know, uh, we experienced that as a company. Uh, in fact, um, uh, we, we re-headquartered our company last year from Southern California to Miami, as you can see in the background yes. here. Uh, Beautiful, by the way. Uh, uh, there were some surprises that came from that. We did this operationally and functionally because there were some things that we were doing to expand the business that, uh, that made it smart to move down here. But uh, one of the things that we didn't expect, um, and, and, uh, and I had lots of interviews with uh, CNBC and others that were wanting to know why the move from uh, California to Florida, and uh, aside from some of the obvious, uh, one of the big surprises was that uh, I initially went to Southern California from Chicago. Chicago is a very old, you know, stodgy business climate, right. always has been. It's a miracle to me that to see companies like Groupon and Grubhub you know, emerge out of the, that market because yeah. that wasn't the kind of market it was. When I went to Cal uh, Southern California over 25 years ago, I was the first thing that was uh, uh, very obvious to me was the outlook and optimism and, um, and how much capital was flowing and how much new industry was percolating and bubbling, just a huge cauldron of activity in Southern California in the, in the mid nineties. And it was palpable and, uh, and uh, optimism was high. Outlook was high. Um, uh, but that all came to a, a crash in 2008 with the collapse of the housing market. There were a lot of uh, companies that were central to the, the, the mortgage crisis that were based there in, in Orange County where we were. But what happened was this collapse and people went into uh, uh, just survival mode and businesses did that. And it never came back. Uh, uh, right. And so one of the surprises when, I, when we came down here to Miami was all of a sudden it was that same type of optimism and that bright outlook and all that here in Miami and all the creative juices are flowing. And, and for us, that actually, you know, it, it, it kind of changed our thinking about our business and about, uh, about uh, consumers. And the, we have two parts of our, our business, the human capital part where we, uh, we manage human capital, but another piece um, that we built based on all of our learning with restaurant brands and operators uh, we found some major holes in their way of thinking and the way they connect with consumers. So we went to work to build uh, and add to our technology stack, uh, an, a mobile ordering platform uh, that sits on top of Square. Square is our partner on this, that, um, that uh, allows us to uh, take and build uh, virtual brands. And, uh, and part of what we did with our, our incubator ghost kitchen operation that we opened up down here, we saw an opportunity to do something that nobody else was doing. We saw that uh, with COVID. Scott, I'm going to, I'm going to pause you there because we just going to run out of time because I'm actually okay. using, uh, I'm using the, the, my personal mm. Zoom account, which is a bit of a problem. So we are going to cut it there. Thank you, Scott, for joining. Thank you guys for listening in. This is another episode of Off the Record Show. Uh, we will be back with another great guest. We are